Episode 3, Dogen, Daruma and the Daffodils. As they say in Morocco, buongiorno, and thank you for joining me for Episode 3 of Wages of Zen, in which for those of you who've just joined us, a 40-something man makes sounds into a microphone, buoyantly optimistic that his audience will rise into double figures before Christmas 2026. If you were here last week, that means you've met Eggpan Stan, the protagonist of a poem that not very subtly denigrated the omnipresence of handheld technology and pondered its potential psychological cost. We also looked a little deeper at attention, finding it at the centre of meditation practice, and thanks to the lovely Chanel, imagine the possible improvements to her life that such a practice might precipitate. Now it's testament to my Olympic rambling ability that we're already on episode three, and I haven't properly described the practice of meditation, or indeed even told you how to do it, but bear with me, because it might just happen in this episode. I'd like to begin though by considering the cultural identity of meditation in the West. As meditation is generally seen as something unfamiliar or exotic over here, it might be interesting to explore Joe and Margaret Public's perception of this ancient practice. In order to do this, as I don't actually know of Joe and Margaret Public, I embarked upon the next best thing, a swift and substandard reconnaissance of the internet. A Google image search for meditation elicits thumbnails of slaphead monks, yoga mums and bearded hermits, blissed out atop a mountain or stuck in a village hall or cave somewhere, sitting legs crossed with eyes closed, palms up to the sky, thumb and forefinger pinched together to make a circle. To complete the sensory data for this cliché, the scent of nagchampa incense and the ethereal hum of om probably fills the air, until eventually the muted bong of the Tibetan singing bowl indicates that meditation time's over and now you have to frantically remember where you parked the Audi because Saoirse's late for Pony Club. Sorry, that, that last bit's only for the yoga mums. Last time I checked with the union, hermits weren't allowed Audis or daughters. Ponies, as it happens, are permitted but are a frowned upon accessory in hermiting circles. The mystical and middle-class flavour of the scene just painted, although aesthetically intriguing, probably does little to tempt people into trying meditation. I feel that it either makes meditation look too spiritual or boring and aimless, or look like something difficult, something like they could never possibly do as well as the tattooed and toned hashtag yoginis of Instagram. These perceptions of meditation are paradoxically both true and false simultaneously. Don't worry, you'll get used to it. Yes, meditation is a practice derived from ancient religious traditions and adopted by the spiritually inclined. It is frequently boring and ultimately, brackets wonderfully, aimless. And you're probably better off not spending so much time scrolling through at yoga with Bradley's eye-watering forward bends, no matter how good he looks in those short shorts. Oh my god, how, how, does, how does he even get into those shorts? What are they, sprayed on? Sorry, where was I? Uh, so we found out that according to the internet, meditation is either for monks or the bored mothers of bourgeois suburbia. Clearly that's not right. Laying these obvious stereotypes to one side, meditation is something that anyone can and should try. You really only have to be human and alive, and possibly not diagnosably insane. And even the people that I hang around with meet those criteria most of the time. So by now I guess my imaginary listener, Barry, is probably screaming into his pot noodle, but how do I do it? He's shouting, his eyes burning from the vapours of his Bombay bad boy. Well, hold your horses, Barry, because this next bit will be right up your strasser. 
another terse perusal of the interweb reveals a wide variety of meditation. Mindfulness, mantra, vipassana, transcendental, progressive, loving-kindness, visualisation, to name but seven. I may explore some of these styles at later times, but as this is a podcast about Zen, I think we should look at the type most commonly associated with Soto Zen, which is called Zazen, or Seated Meditation. I'd like to quickly preempt a conspicuous opportunity for criticism here. Before we go any further, I might add to the disclaimer laid out in episode zero that I do not have any formal training in Zen. By this I mean that I have not attended retreats or sitting groups or ever been part of a resident or monastic practice. Hang on before you throw your headphones down in disgust. A significant part of the reason for this is my introversion and social anxiety. I have attempted over the years to join sitting groups and attend meditation courses, but I've always found my anxiety too overwhelming for me to continue. If this situation happens to change in the future, then I would gladly take up the chance to show my face at a retreat or join a meditation class. But up until now, my experience of Zen Buddhism and Zazen has been a solo effort. And as such, I have no teacher, no Roshi, no master. And much like the celebrated solitudinarians of the past, my practice has been to take to my cell and study the many wonderful articulations and interpretations of the great Zen masters, whilst sitting regularly in meditation, of course. I appreciate that this, in some sense, may not have provided me with the best slash most traditional background in the study of Zen. However, the lineages of all schools of Zen are littered with characters whose behaviour challenges the customary values and traditions of the day. That said, I also make no attempt to deliberately be a maverick. I have a profound love and respect for both the aesthetic beauty of the literature, art, architecture and cultural aspects of Zen, and practice Zazen as sincerely as possible under the grateful guidance of both the many Buddhas that have come before me and myself. Considering the vast amount of literature that exists about Zen, really very little has been written about the practice of Zazen. In researching this episode, I reread the book The Art of Just Sitting by John Dado Lori. The Art of Just Sitting is not, as one might think, the biography of Eggpan Stan. It is a collection of writings on Zazen by various masters over the centuries, from the 13th century onwards to the present day. It offers instruction on the suitable environment, physical posture and mental attitudes, highlighting the many stages of progression towards enlightenment and equally illuminating the considerable difficulties one might experience on this path. A respected text in Soto Zen literature is the Zazenji, literally rules for Zazen, a short instructional piece written by the proclaimed founder of the Soto Zen sect in Japan, Ehai Dogen, Dogen is a central character in Zen Buddhist history in Japan, and he'll certainly reappear as a topic in other episodes. But until then, let me read to you Zazenji, Zen Master Dogen's directions on how to meditate properly. Practicing Zen is Zazen. For Zazen, a quiet place is suitable. Lay out a thick mat. Do not let in draughts or smoke, rain or dew. Protect and maintain the place where you settle your body. Day or night, the place of sitting should not be dark. It should be kept warm in winter and cool in summer. Set aside all involvements and let the myriad things rest. Zazen is not thinking of good, not thinking of bad. It's not conscious endeavour, it's not introspection. Do not desire to become a Buddha. Let sitting or lying down drop away. Be moderate in eating and drinking. 
be mindful of the passing of time, and engage yourself in Zazen as though saving your head from fire. When sitting Zazen, use a round cushion. The cushion should not be placed all the way under the legs, but only under the buttocks. In this way, the cross legs rest on the mat and the backbone is supported with the round cushion. This is the method used by all Buddha ancestors for Zazen. Sit in either the half lotus position or in the full lotus position. For the full lotus, put the right foot on the left thigh and the left foot on the right thigh. The toes should lie along the thighs, not extending beyond. For the half lotus position, simply put the left foot on the right thigh. Loosen your robes and arrange them in an orderly way. Place the right hand on the left foot and the left hand on the right hand, lightly touching ends of the thumbs together. With the hands in this position, place them next to the body so that the joined thumb tips are at the navel. Straighten your body and sit erect. Do not lean to the left or the right. Do not bend forward or backward. Your ears should be in line with your shoulders and your nose in line with your navel. Rest your tongue against the roof of your mouth and breathe through your nose. Lips and teeth should be closed. Eyes should be open, neither too wide nor too narrow. Having adjusted body and mind in this manner, take a breath and exhale fully. Sit solidly in samadhi and think not thinking. How do you think not thinking? Non-thinking. This is the heart of Zazen. Zazen is not learning to do concentration. It is the Dharma gate of great ease and joy. It is undefiled practice enlightenment. Wow, uh, those words were written in 1243. It never ceases to amaze me how relevant they still are to meditation practice today. They remind me that this practice at its roots has remained unchanged for millennia. And apart from the closing paragraphs, Dogen's instructions are as clear as they can be. We know that Zen is not about signs and symbols, and that words alone could never truly express the simplicity, subtlety or profundity of Zazen. Although Dogen's attempt here is as about as good as it gets. Dogen opens with the line, practicing Zen is Zazen. I mean, don't beat around the bush, Dogs, tell it how it is. Those four words leave us in no doubt that he means business. The spirit of Dogen's teaching shines through here. It's uncompromising and direct. For him, clearly the practice of Zazen is everything. It is, as he confidently asserts later, the Dharma gate of joy and ease. And who doesn't love a bit of joy and ease? In the remainder of the opening passages, Dogen presents us with clear directions to establishing an appropriate environment in which to practice Zazen. Not too hot, not too cold, not too dark or too light, no wind, no rain, no smoke, no left turns and no excuses. He goes on to tell us to set aside our worldly worries and commitments, to be moderate in our dietary intake. This is particularly good advice, as meditating on an empty stomach or absolutely stuffed with spag bol and jaffa cakes is not ideal. I can vouch for that. He informs us to be mindful of passing time and to practice Zazen with the same urgency and intensity you would use to save your barnet from going up in smoke. He goes on to mention the correct physical posture for meditation suggesting either the full lotus or half lotus position. Most people are probably aware of these seated yogic positions, 
and are maybe, like me, barely able to lower myself to the floor without an ambulance, never mind throwing my feet onto my thighs. I can assure you, at the risk of wrath from the purists, that perfectly good Zazen can be achieved in the Caesar, which is a kneeling pose, lying down or even seated upright on a straight back chair. I believe the original purpose of this upright cross-legged pose is to promote awakeness rather than encourage sleepiness in the practitioner. Lying down is not the best position to encourage alertness as our bodies naturally associate it with rest. But I figure if you've sustained injuries over the course of your life that make it difficult for you to sit upright for long periods and you can lie down, then that's a better option than ploughing on with sitting and risking further injury. More physical instructions follow as Dogen, who is thorough if nothing else, demands that our ears, shoulders, nose and belly buttons should be in full alignment, if you can imagine such a thing. Our eyes should be open, but not too open, and our tongues welded to the tops of our mouths. His physical instruction culminates with taking a deep breath and exhaling fully. And scene. That's it. Barely a page and a half of instructions, and off we go on our own into the unknown. Well, not quite the unknown. The rest of Dogen's instructions, which I've deliberately avoided thus far, are designed as best he can to articulate and help us navigate our way through the non-physical aspects of meditation, i.e. the metaphysical bits. Now, fear not, if you're one of the many people who involuntarily mouth vomit when they hear the word metaphysical, I get it. Metaphysics is the philosophical realm of the abstract. It deals with the notions of time, being, space, knowing. And I'm sure it hardly thrills the listener to know that that's our destination. However, I can assure you that I'm not a fan either of the tinder dry and unnecessarily wordy, circuitous, periphrastic, prolix and logaraic prose found in academic circles and some writings on Zen. I much prefer to keep it simple. Let's just say it. Describing the qualities or characteristics of the meditative state is impossible. And realistically, one is only left with metaphor and analogy to attempt an explanation. That said, in Zen there is a vast canon of poetic and beguiling metaphorical words and imagery that indicate with a palpable force the path towards enlightenment. And I intend to steal those idioms and pass them off as my own. No, sorry, I mean I will collate these for you and present them in a hopefully interesting and probably irreverent way. It pays to remember that Zen is about direct experience. It's not a thought experiment or, as Dogen insists, not about introspection or conscious endeavour or learning to concentrate. There's nothing innately wrong with those actions, it's just that they're not the true essence of Zazen. However useful or fascinating thinking about Zen or contemplating your inner world and experience are, as Buddha and Bruce Lee reckon, they will always just be fingers pointing at the moon, i.e. that you're becoming caught in the unhelpful details and entirely missing the truth. You're mis you are mistaking the means for the end, the woods for the trees, and the monkey for the organ grinder. And even I don't know what that last one means. I can just see Barry, my imaginary listener, in his bed sit, surrounded by empty custard cream packets and noodly debris, his knees screaming in pain, and approaching dislocation as he forces his lower limbs into the full lotus. Ready, poised like a coiled anaconda to spring into meditation, he's sweating profusely, staring at his fingering, wondering what the actual fuck is this guy talking about. Sorry, Baz, 
I know wanging on about fingers and moons is probably not very helpful right now, but I just want to make it clear that there's a bit more to it than being quiet, breathing and sitting down. Or is there? But anyway, I promised analogies and God damn it, here's an absolute beauty for you. If Dogen's instructions for the physical and environmental aspect of meditation practice are the bread, then the metaphysical features are the cheese, the meat, the jam, the ham, the spam of the sandwich. And much like those fictional fillings, they're delicious to roll around the mouth and savour, but should ultimately be spat out because they're indigestible concepts. Now, speaking of indigestible concepts, on the off chance that you like what you've heard so far and can't possibly continue any further without fulfilling your desire to give your money away, then you can send me a postal order at Wages of Zen, Cell 93, HM Prison Broadmoor. Or alternatively, donate what you can by going to patreon.com forward slash wages of Zen and following the instructions. Thank you. This week's unrelated final thought comes in the shape of a game. What I would call a connection game, something along the lines of the parlour classic Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, where the player is challenged to start with an arbitrary Hollywood actor and make connections through co-stars to eventually arrive at Kevin Bacon in six or less steps. My version is called Daruma and the Daffodils, and the rules are thus. Link something zen with something apparently unzen in the most bizarre and interesting way possible in under six moves. The idea for this game came to me whilst arranging a photo for my Instagram account at Wages of Zen, where, FYI, I post digital representations of things that I've looked at, found interested and pointed a camera towards. The photo in question is a Daruma doll nestled in a bouquet of daffodil blooms. Now, I'm going to assume that I don't have to explain what a daffodil is. If you genuinely don't know, then you're either too young to be listening to this or too stupid to work as a florist. A Daruma doll is a papier-mâché representation of Bodhidharma, the supposed first patriarch of Zen. It's a stumpy, egg-shaped and rather unflattering depiction, reminiscent of the Weeble, a now extinct British toy which, if my memory serves me correctly, wobbled but wouldn't fall down. I'd like to point out that, although the upright quality of the Weeble need never be doubted, the substantial counterweight used to achieve its teetering motion did result in a small yet relatively heavy toy which could be gathered in large numbers by older brothers and misused as skull-cracking projectiles. The Weeble itself may never have fallen down, but many a kid in 70s and 80s Britain wobbled and fell into a hospital bed with a Weeble wedged in their eye socket. But yes, anyway, the Daruma doll looks a bit like a Weeble and is seen as a talisman of good fortune in Japan. The dolls are essentially a painted face with every feature present apart from the eyes. The doll's owner is supposed to fill one of the eyes in and make a wish, and then fill the other eye in when the wish comes true. So how the hell am I going to get from a good luck Japanese paper doll to the National Flower of Wales in six moves or less? Well, Buddhism tells us that everything is connected, so let's test whether that's true. After a good amount of head scratching, I managed to arrive at a few full connections, but I think the following one takes the biscuit. Daruma dolls are sold without eyes. They are eyeless. Eyeless in Gaza, a novel by Aldous Huxley mourning the loss of spirituality in contemporary society, was published in 1936. In 1936, the African-American blues guitarist Buddy Guy was born. In his early career, whilst recording demos, Guy worked as a recovery truck driver. 
The recovery truck was invented by Ernest Holmes Sr. of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga, Tennessee, or Gig City as it's otherwise known, not for mu any musical reason, but for its claim that it has the fastest internet service in the Western Hemisphere. The Western Hemisphere, an imaginary area spanning half the globe to the west of the Greenwich Meridian, is a perfect demonstration by everyone involved of almost unbelievable colonial ignorance and narcissism. Narcissism is a psychological disorder named after the Greek mythological character Narcissus, who fell in love with his own reflection, melted and became a flower. You can see where this is going. Narcissus is also the genus name of the Amaryllis family of perennial plants, one of which is, you guessed it, the daffodil. Thanks for listening. See you next week.